Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com support. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Oh, yeah, baby. That's $270 worth of pudding. If you don't know what that's from, you should bone up on your state. Fantastic sketch comedy show. Oh, guys, welcome to Electric Liberty Land this week with me, Brian McWilliams. Howdy. Ho there. This is episode number 38, which means you can find it at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL38. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm not going to lie. I am tired. We had a uh, an earthquake here in Los Angeles last night. Not a big one. Fortunately, not like the Mexico City earthquake, which was, I think, like a 7.1. Uh, buildings falling down, all sorts of horrible scenes there. So fortunately, we avoided that for now. But uh, we did have a 3.1. Funny thing is, though, I have uh, pretty bad insomnia from time to time. I'm sure a lot of you out there also get that affliction. Thinking about all the things in this world that piss me the fuck off keeps me up at night. <laughs> but last night I had uh, you know, run around and play a little softball and uh, got all got all revved up sprinting using these long giraffe legs of mine. And you know, come home, go to bed, and I just could not fall asleep. I was in bed at like 9 o'clock, took two ibuprofen PMs, which usually do the job, do God's work of putting this brain to bed, let me dream of sugar plums, all that good stuff. But unfortunately, last night fell well short of sleepy time dreamland. And what's funny, though, is that the earthquake last night, I think it happened sometime around like 11 o'clock. And uh, I remember I was lying there. We've got dogs that sleep in the bed with us. You know, like Our big dog sleeps on the side. But we have a little dog named Chloe. And little Chloe, she sleeps in between my wife and I on a pillow, like between our heads on it. Her own little pillow because she's a filthy beast. And when she used to sleep with her head on my pillow or any part of her body, I would get styes in my eyes, which are horrible. Scratching at them and there'd be pus oozing out of my eyeballs. It'd be disgusting. Just... <laughs> Really looked like a filthy guy. I probably look like what most politicians look like, uh, just in general, you know, just like bleary eyed, pus filled dirt bags. But regardless, Chloe sleeps between us. And my wife sat up in the middle of the night, you know, at 11 o'clock, and uh, she's like, oh, and she looks around. And, and I kind of sat up and looked around, but not really. I didn't realize there was an earthquake going on because I figure. It's probably just the dogs getting up. Yeah, the dog gets up, recirculates, sits up, gets down. So it's like I wasn't thinking anything of it. Then I find out this morning, earthquake. So there you go. So tired and out of it. Didn't even realize an earthquake happened. I am still tired and out of it right now. But we got a lot of stuff to talk about. I'm going to power through this. Get it done. So first things first, the Emmys did take place this past Sunday. I'm sure a lot of you probably did not watch them. I know that I did not because, frankly, I'd rather watch football. And uh, especially when I'm a little hungover from watching football at the bar early in the day. Go Eagles. And, uh, frankly, I knew what I was in for. I knew what it was going to be. 
especially when Colbert's hosting it. Colbert, who's gone on his show, and, and you know, it's, it's too bad to see what has happened to Stephen Colbert. Because he used to be a very smart, funny, satirical commenter. And while he's definitely left-leaning, he had some fantastic bits. And his character, his persona as Colbert on The Colbert Report was spot on. He was able to really make fun of both sides. He made fun of the right more. But he did it in a way which, I mean, as somebody that's more conservative-leaning than progressive-leaning, you know, you still watch it. And you go, all right, that's funny stuff. Like, shit, take the piss out of him, man. It's great. I'm enjoying it. Now, the CBS show he's got, it's just unwatchable. I mean, it's just him railing about how Trump's a Nazi nonstop and uh, and making fun of conservatives. And it's just, it's gone into Samantha B slash, uh, not, not Fallon, but uh, Samantha B or Daily Show territory. And the Daily Show is also completely unwatchable because it falls into that place of hackery. You know, it's low-hanging fruit constantly. The Trump jokes, low-hanging fruit. It's not funny. It's not clever. It's not original. And that's what the Emmys were. I mean, in rereading all the write-ups about the Emmys that came out, in watching the video clips, in watching what won, watching the thank you statements from some of these people, it is to a T what I would have expected it would have been. And that started with the opening number which I watched today, and I was debating pulling the audio, but it's like three and a half minutes long, and I just, you guys don't need to be submitted to that. If you want to, you can go to the show notes page again, lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL38, and you can look at it there. I embedded it right in the page for you, because I'm that kind of guy, just giving man. But the opening number, Colbert opens it up, and the whole theme of this opening number was... The world is better on TV. And they make the statement that, you know, when the world's got you down, when you're worried about what's going on outside, and of course, for them, it's all Trump-related. But when the world's got you down, you turn on the TV and everything's better. It's an escape, right? Except the news, obviously. But the tone deafness of this opening number was absolutely hilarious because these lefties, I mean, I guess they're they're willfully ignorant of the fact that all of this television content that's coming out has adopted the progressive policies and viewpoints of the creators of these shows. And virtually all of Hollywood is incredibly liberal, super progressive, super liberal. So these shows that are coming out are all left-leaning. And I give you, I'll give you a perfect example. Look at the new American Horror Story, which is a show that became terrible four seasons ago, unwatchably terrible. That aside, certain people still watch it. And the opening trailer for this, this uh, season's show of American Horror Story, which also, by the way, features Lena Dunham, the most progressively moronic fucktard that has ever lived. She's, of course, on the show this year. Yes, the same Lena Dunham that cried foul because Odell Beckham Jr. sat next to her at a dinner and penned an entire opus about how Odell Beckham Jr. had somehow fat-slash-ugly-shamed her uh, because he didn't talk to her at a dinner when the truth of the matter was simply that he didn't know who she was. Because why the hell would Odell Beckham Jr., wide receiver for the New York Giants and a guy who's maybe 25 or 26 years old, why would he watch Girls on HBO or have any interest in 
anything Lena Dunham would be doing. Clearly, he would not. And of course, when people pointed this out to her and Odell Beckham was asked, he goes, I don't even know who she was. Lena Dunham was forced to pen a retraction. But even, of course, even in her retraction, though, she can't just eat crow and be like, you know what? I'm wrong. I'm an idiot for saying that anybody who doesn't find me incredibly interesting and attractive. And by the way, I don't like to necessarily make fun of people's looks because there's a lot, a lot of people, you know, certain things you can't change about yourself. But one thing you can change, you can at least have a modicum of fitness in your life. You can go out of your way to try not to look incredibly unappealing. But Lena Dunham does the opposite. She tends to try to look as revolting as possible. And I'm 100% sure this is the fact. But she lives her life basically saying, if you don't find me attractive, it's because you are a bad person who has been blinded by these beauty standards that exist in the world. And you're a, you're a rotten piece of shit for not thinking that I'm incredible with my grotesqueness. Again, it's the victim mentality that she has completely absorbed and which so many people have absorbed today. And that, again, is very apparent in these Emmys as well. I'll come back to that in a minute. So getting back to this opening number. So again, the whole theme, the world is better on TV. So they dance and prance around. They do a whole number dedicated to bashing Trump, talking about uh, global warming, talking about treason being better on TV, and then... You've got Julia Louis-Dreyfus in her Veep role saying, imagine if your president wasn't beloved by Nazis. This is on a primetime award show calling the president beloved by Nazis. Now, if it was funny, I could say, okay, go for it. And again, I'm for pretty much saying whatever you want to say, obviously, but to come out and make this statement that everything's better on TV, and that's where you want to go to escape all of the stuff going on in the rest of the world, and then make an entire musical number dedicated to reminding you about the politics of the people that created the show so you can't escape. You cannot watch TV to escape, which is what I want to do. I'm sick of this. I am above and beyond sick of goddamn politics being fed to me through TV shows where I just, I want to just enjoy the characters on the show. I want to enjoy the plot of the show. I don't need you browbeating me with your progressive horseshit during every show that I turn on. And that's what this is doing. I mean, even later in this opening, mo- opening musical part two, they had Chance the Rapper, who honestly, I only know because of the Twix commercial he's in, <laughs> or the Kit Kat. The Kit Kat commercial that Chance the Rapper's in. It's the only reason I know who the hell Chance the Rapper is. Because I am turning 38 this year, and I guess I'm too far gone, so I don't know who he is. But saw him on there, and he's doing this whole, you know, his whole little rap segment of this. And then he's saying to record your TV shows so you can show up at the protests. And they show, of course, the Pussy Hat March. And he, had, and he was talking about transgender, allowing transgenders in the, in the military. If you're the majority of America tuning in to watch this show. You're just tuning in to see celebrities accept awards and jerk themselves off. Because that's all this, uh, this show is. I mean, it's, it is perverse in its egoism. It's ridiculous. And these people don't seem to understand that. Like, they can't, they can't take self-parody. We saw that much. Every year the Oscars, when they go too far making fun of the people there, or the Golden Globe Awards, where they make fun of them, that doesn't go over well. 
because thin skin is what is the uh, the look du jour in Hollywood. But goddamn, these people love to tell you how to live. Just, it makes me so annoyed. And then they got also Sean Spicer, former press secretary for Trump. They bring him out for a bit. And you know what? To Spicer's credit, dude agreed to do it. He went out there as one of the uh, one of the bits that got mo- the most attention during. He came out and basically made fun of himself for uh, for saying that Trump's you know Trump's inauguration had the biggest crowd ever. Made some joke about that. And Melissa McCarthy's it was at her podium that she used in the Spicer character. And even then, the liberal audience. This guy's coming out. He's basically just admitting that he was. Uh, taking a, a viewpoint he didn't agree with, that he was totally full of shit when he's up there talking, and he's mocking himself. Even then, these progressive dickholes can't just say, oh, you know what, that's pretty funny, Sean. Good, you know what, good on you for having a sense of humor. No, all these dickheads are taken to Twitter, and they're saying, oh, yeah, I, I, yeah thanks for, uh, for getting up there, but you know, it, it doesn't excuse you. Is this, trying to, is this trying to smooth over what you did? Oh, no, 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 you still lied for a racist, sexist bigot. For people that are supposed to have a sense of humor, for the people that are supposed to be the more adoptive of other people's viewpoints and more accepting and more forgiving my God, you sure don't know how to turn the other cheek, do you? Just pathetic, man. Just the whole thing is just pathetic. Goddamn cesspool of people jerking off and then swimming in their own cum. Oh, that's why we mark these shows explicit, guys. Apologize if that's too much for you, but I'm, uh, <laughs> I pull no punches. <laughs> Going on three hours of sleep, you get no punches pulled on today's show. Ah, One more thing I want to talk about the Emmys, then I'm going to move on. It's just this thing that Donald Glover, who uh, you guys might be familiar with, he's, he raps his Childish Gambino. He acts, he directed and wrote uh, the series Atlanta, which he run, won a Best Comedic Actor Award for. I think he might have won for Best Director as well, won Emmy Awards. And uh, admittedly, I've not watched the show. I've wanted to. And I'm, I'm going to overcome this, uh, what he says here. And I'm still going to try to watch it, try to squash my annoyance. But he goes up on stage. And he accepts his award and he thanks his parents and whatever else. And then he goes, I want to thank Trump for making black people number one on the most oppressed list. I think that's why I'm up here. And I heard him say that. And at first, first blush, I said, okay, man, black people are the most oppressed list. Okay. And Trump did that. Okay. Is he just, is he being a, is it, is it a joke? Is it like he's making a joke? He's saying that they're on the most oppressive because they're really not. And that's, and he's acknowledging that fact. And I even Googled to see if I was misinterpreting because people seem to take it at he's taking a shot at Trump. And he honestly believes that black people are number one on the most oppressed list, which of course is insane. It's completely insane to say that. I mean, <laughs> we're talking about, okay, for number one, point to me one policy. One policy that Trump has put through that uh, that has targeted black people in any way, shape, or form. Show me where Trump has gone out of his way to be racist towards black America. Because I ain't seeing it. What I'm seeing is, if anything, I mean, if you could say the one class you could say he could possibly be oppressing would be Hispanics. 
And by that, it's more by virtue of this this dreamers uh, trying to you know take the dreamers and kick them out, which is now rescinded. It's by virtue of uh, deporting immigrants. It's by virtue of trying to crack down on the standards for people that are coming into the country. That's the only way I could see to possibly say he was he has oppressed anyone <laughs> during during his time in office. I mean, I could see where you could argue that. Black America has been the target of unfair police actions. That I definitely agree with. Because you guys know there's certain things I'm passionate about. Justice reform, the war on drugs, and foreign policy. Those are my big three. Well, and the First Amendment now, because the First Amendment's become under attack so goddamn much. But justice reform just drives me crazy. The amount of people stuck in jail, especially primarily black people that are stuck in jail for minor offenses or bullshit three-strike rules put in by the Clinton administration or mandatory minimum sentencing or the over-policing of black neighborhoods where they say, okay, well, we're going to police these neighborhoods more because they're poor and because there's a lot of crime and drugs there. Meanwhile, there's more crime and drugs there and more because it's like, oh, well, the arrest rates are up. Well, yeah, no shit because you're policing them. You got a cop on every corner. If you policed any neighborhood like you're policing those neighborhoods, you're going to arrest a ton of people because they happen to be breaking laws. Everybody breaks laws all the time, constantly. And if Big Brother is always looking over your shoulder, of course you're going to get arrested. So that, I agree, that's oppressive. But I'm sorry, as a whole, are black people oppressed in this country where there's no opportunity? No. That's categorically untrue. And in fact, I would argue that black people would be even less oppressed if they didn't have the social programs in place, which, in my opinion, work as a type of gilded cage. It's not a lot of guilt, but it's a gilded cage nonetheless. Because you've got these programs in place which entice people to not partake in upward mobility as much as they should. You've got programs in place which say, okay, well, here, stay put. We're going to give you this money. We're going to give you these, these little uh, pittances. And then you'll just be happy doing what you're doing. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll make a little drugs on the side money. Maybe you'll do whatever. But uh, here you go. Here's welfare money. Here's uh, disability money. Here is unemployment money. Here's your special benefits. Here's your Obama phones. Here's your all this shit. Which people say, well, yeah, I'm pretty much set now. Why should I bother? Now, that doesn't only apply to black communities, by the way. But black communities have gotten more benefits than white communities as we try to even things out over the years. I mean, across the board, you've heard me talk about this before, across the board, welfare spending has like more than quadrupled over the last few years. And the poverty rate stays the exact same. And that's everybody across the board. That's white people too. Everybody stays on the same level. They have no incentive to move up. So I'm sorry, just give me a goddamn break talking about in the last, what, what's Trump been in office, six months? He's oppressed black America. He's in six months. He's made black people the most oppressed people. Get the hell out of here. I will agree, though, that there's a good chance that because uh, people have this concept in their heads where they have to strike back at the Trump administration, that everybody decided, well, we're going to vote for all the diversity shows. Again, I haven't watched it. I don't know if it's good or not. I don't watch any of the shows virtually that are nominated for the Emmys because it's mostly the same old shit. It's reality shows. It's The Big Bang Theory, which is the worst show on television. If you watch The Big Bang Theory, be ashamed of yourself. I want you to smash your face into your phone right now if you're listening on your phone. If you're listening to the computer, pick it up, close it, hit yourself in the forehead because you're an idiot. show's terrible. 
unbelievably bad jokes, unbelievably terrible writing, terrible laugh track over top of it. I mean, God damn it. If you watch it without the laugh track, you don't even know where the jokes are. I promise you. Try it. Disgust me. All right, enough on that. That's enough ranting about, <laughs> about the Emmys and the state of the U.S. in regards to that, right? Oh, I think so. But the moral of that story, guys, is that they simply need to get entertainment and politics separated. I want church and state. I want oil and water when it comes to that. Stop preaching to me in the middle of my goddamn TV shows. Just let me watch. Let me relax. Let me enjoy a show. I don't need Bob Costas talking to me during a football game about world politics. I don't need it. I'm glad he doesn't work anymore. All right, let's move on. What do you think we should talk about next, guys? I think we should talk about the Federal Reserve because the Fed is back in the news. And on the good news, some good news today, we've got the quantitative easing that they performed under Ben Bernanke. Ben Bernanke, who should be burned atop a fiery pile of Krugmans. Ben Bernanke's policy of quantitative easing has proven to be disastrous and a complete failure. And people are now calling that out vocally. All of the quantitative easing that was happening, they're pulling the plug on it. They're ceasing it as of right now. The Fed's getting that off the books. Now, granted, the damage has already been done. All those interest rates, all of that inflation that they caused, all of that money that they created out of thin air that did nothing to help the common person in this country, the taxpayers of this country, did absolutely nothing. That's already been done. There's nothing we can do to roll that back. But at least the Fed seems to acknowledge the fact that quantitative easing does absolutely nothing to help. That all of these world economies, all of these federal banks across the globe that partook in this this Ponzi scheme of fiat money have just been lying to people and basically filling the coffers of the banks, helping out Wall Street, because it did help out Wall Street. If you had a portfolio or if you were an investment banker, you made out like a bandit. But for all the rest of us, for those of us who have the savings accounts, for those of us who have hard money that's just sitting around, we lost out. Didn't, didn't help the, uh, the GDP. Didn't help growth at all. Stayed the exact same. Didn't do anything. So once again, there actually may be a call to end the Fed. And for once we might actually get somebody listening to that call. I mean, Rand Paul had an audit the Fed bill, which I believe had passed one of the hurdles, but I think got stalled out. But now's the time. Revisit it. Let's audit the Fed. Because they're, they're an organization outside of the federal government that's in control of our money. What have they been doing with that money? Wasting time. <laughs> Wasting money. Just burning it in thin air and giving it away. <laughs> For nothing. Now's the time to re-examine it. End the Fed, baby. Get Ron Paul back out there stumping. All right, let's take a little break, and I will be right back with more Electric Liberty Land. Hey, guys, this is Roger Paxton. And if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow Podcast, striking the root every single episode. 
This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. Hey everyone, the Johnny Rocket Launchpad is Liberty. Each week we strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, experts, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check us out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com. You can hear me, Kurt Nelson, and the beautiful Heather Nixon talk about the ideas of liberty. Rock and roll. Oh, the Johnny Rocket Launchpad. Guys, I know. For those of you in the know, Johnny Rocket has assured me. I'm still playing the promo for his show. He assures me that his podcast will be returning very soon. In the meantime, you guys should check out the Liberty Force comics that he's put together. They are awesome. And I know Mark's doing a little uh, special segment for our Pride members with uh, with good old Johnny Adams. So make sure to check that out, guys. You should be in the Pride. It is awesome. Especially right now. we got a special where you get uh, for $5. Get some koozies. It's good stuff. Plus, you know, for $25, you get all sorts of stuff. You get to talk to us in person. You get all sorts of extra content. Oh, my goodness. It is the bee's knees. You know, speaking of bee's knees, that's an old-timey phrase. And my wife last night, <laughs> my, last night when I was trying to desperately fall asleep, my wife, I would said something was a lark. And she was like, a lark? She's like, how old are you? What are you, like a 70-year-old man? And I was like, what? Lark's great. I think it's a wonderful phrase. Something's a lark. She didn't know what it was. Because you say something's a lark. I mean, it's like a joke, you know? It's like, what a lark, what a goofy thing. What a crazy happenstance. You know, got a vocabulary over here, people. I know I use the curse words to punctuate, but I do have a vocabulary. I was an English major. So anyway, we're bringing it back, guys. You and me. You, me, and Dupree, we're bringing back lark. What a lark, we'll laugh and say to each other as we're rubbing elbows at the Libertarian Convention someday. All right, anyway, back to the show, guys. Welcome back to Electric Liberty Land. Now, next thing I want to talk about, I want to talk about health care. Because there is a new bill that has reared its ugly head from Lindsey Graham, who uh, is despicable, and Bill Cassidy, who I don't really know much about, of Louisiana. So they put out a bill, basically, that is the latest and last attempt, at least, <laughs> at least for the near future, to overhaul or repeal Obamacare. And the reason that this has come about right now is that the Republicans only have about two weeks left to use a 2017 budget reconciliation bill as a way to dismantle Obamacare. And that, by by virtue of the Senate rules, gives them the ability to do it with a simple majority, which is like 50 votes. So they're itching to pull the trigger and try to get something done before it reverts to having to get more votes to uh, to repeal or, or alter the bill. So what they've done is they put together this new bill and essentially it keeps a lot of Obamacare in place as far as the expenditures. That is the bad news. Uh, it also does not el- completely eliminate the, uh, the insurance requirements so that people have to get insurance. So there's no way for insurance companies to not insure people anymore. So that's unfortunate as well. Um, But it does get rid of the individual employer mandates. 
So individuals are no longer forced to pay for health insurance. So that was great. It would eliminate the penalty for it retroactive to 2016. It also repeals subsidies and ends Medicaid expansion funding, which I'm all for. Uh, stop extending Medicaid funding. But unfortunately, those subsidies have been replaced with something they want to call as a block grant. And essentially, what happened under Obamacare was that there's like four or five states which really expanded massively under Obamacare. It's like New York, Massachusetts, Maryland, and of course, my home state of California, which, God damn it, can't see a tax dollar that they would not love to get their hands on. So, of course, they were part of it. And it's something like... 37% of Obamacare dollars have gone towards these, these few states. So these block grants would instead say, okay, each state gets a certain amount of money. And the arguments against it, and Rand Paul made this argument as well as some Democrats saying, well, you're just taking money from blue states and giving it to red states. Now, while that may be true, that's not a part that I personally have an issue with. Let's just, let's take a time out. Let's look at this bill. I'm going to take my libertarian hat off and I'm just going to try to look at it in, as far as what exists now and what they're trying to do. So if you're trying to change the bill and say, okay, we're going to do block grants instead, that I don't mind. Now, granted, I want to get rid of the thing entirely. Don't get me wrong. But I'm trying to look at this as, as I'm looking at it in the way that is this better or worse than what currently exists? That's kind of the way I'm looking at it. So for me, the block grant is better. The reason it's better is because it gives states more opportunity to have control over the funding that they're receiving and to do whatever they want with it. Now, that could look like anything. I mean, that could, like, asshole states like California could say, okay, we're going to put that money towards a universal payer uh, or a single, single health care plan. It still wouldn't work. <laughs> it still wouldn't work. But they could do that. Or, alternately, 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 you could do something like establish a high-risk pool which is something that I think, and I talked, uh, Rico and I discussed this, I think would be something where it's kind of a good stopgap solution, wherein you could try to keep the cost of healthcare lower. I mean, let's say, again, we're saying this is, <laughs> if we have no shot, it's just a free market solution, which I'm going to talk about that in a little bit too. But if we're taking the free market solution off the table by creating a high-risk pool for the people that are the previously ill, the people that have the cancer, the people have all these pre-existing conditions. By creating a pool that the government would then subsidize with this th that money, you at least are taking the onus off of the mass amount of other people that are just getting a fist up their butt from the existing way that the healthcare system is set up and insurance companies are set up where they're forced to subsidize their own costs across all of us. So for me, that would be a step forward. And frankly, I don't give a shit if it's taking away from blue and giving to red. I don't give a damn. Now, the other thing that this bill does is it also provides insurance companies with the option to have catastrophic insurance, not just for the young, but for anybody that wants it. That is good. That's great. Give people the option to get rid of it. You know, like, again, getting rid of catastrophic insurance plans is one of the stupidest things Obamacare did. Let people do that if you want to take the risk and roll the dice and just have catastrophic care and you want to pay out of pocket to go to the doctor for cold, that's your business. You should be able to do that. So that's another thing that I liked in the bill. Now, the other thing that uh, I think is uh, okay is that they're, they're, well, they're defunding Prime Parenthood, which I, I'm all for just because I don't want to spend money on it. There's no reason for the government to be funding that. 
But it also increases maximum contribu- uh, contributions to health savings accounts, which is quite nice. And it would repeal a tax on over-the-counter medicines, uh, medical devices, etc., which is something which I, I, why that was even built into Obamacare in the first place is beyond me. Okay, that being said, so that's the part of the bill. Those are, those are kind of the, the attractive portions of the bill. Now let's look at the negatives. <laughs> so the negatives of this bill is that you were essentially keeping spending in place. Um, the government is still going to be laying out trillions of dollars. And there's still the same idiotic argument where people are saying, oh, 30, 30 million people are going to lose insurance. But again, that's completely untrue. Don't believe that. If anybody's saying that, please inform them subtly that they're a moron. Because again, that's from people that are going to be saying, okay, well, in that case, I'm dropping out. There's no reason for me to stay on. If there's no mandate for it, I don't long, no longer need to, to pay in. So they're going to drop out already. Now, the other people that might affect is that because they're reducing subsidies for Medicaid and Medicare, you're going to lose some people that are on the poorer side. Like, I think right now the cutoff is $16,000 or lower, something like that. Those are the people that get assistance. And for the elderly as well, because they're, they're rolling back what you have to cover. And that's the other thing from the plan. They're rolling back the plans and what they have to include. One of the most ridiculous things against Obamacare, again, was that it forced people to have all of these other services, mental health coverage, which again, why? Why is that in there? Mental health coverage, all these other screenings, all these other services that were built into these plans that just cost a ton of money. And also, when they're built into insurance, all your doctors, they're always saying, okay, yeah, let's do it. Let's do this. Let's do that. Hospitals, same thing. Sure, rack it up, rack it up, because insurance companies are more inclined to, do, to use them. Or insurance companies have to pay, so hospitals are more inclined to use them. If you don't have insurance, they don't pull that shit. Just FYI. And that is statistically proven. You can negotiate with people. Look at all of these hospitals and all these doctors that operate without insurance involvement, and there's negotiating. There's ways to get around it where you're not doing all these ancillary services. So they have a, again, and that's, it would roll back some of the coverage that these insurers are forced to include. And one of the arguments from the progressive side is that, oh, well, the senior citizens won't be covered in the, you know, because they're going to losing Medicaid dollars and yada, 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 yada. Again, <laughs> I don't think healthcare is right. And I'm sorry if you didn't plan well for your future it's not my problem. That's a problem for your family. That's a problem for your friends. That's a problem for a charity. That's not my problem. It's not the government's problem. It's not something that we should be forced to handle. So I'm all for rolling back all of this stuff. So that's more attractive part of the bill to me as well. Sorry, I should have brought that up on the attractive side. Okay, turn to the negatives. So the negatives, again, still a ton of spending going out. The block grants are still going to be an incredible amount of money. And we still are nowhere closer to a free market system. We also still have no ability to buy insurance across borders and across state lines, which is something that Rand Paul has been talking to Donald Trump directly about. I don't know if Trump has the authority to be able to uh, legalize that, but I know Rand Paul is trying to get him to do it. So again, it does nothing to address those concerns. You're still going to have the same issue where you cannot buy insurance from another state, reduces competition. Again, nowhere closer to a free market system. This plan does nothing to address the competitive clauses that exist in a lot of uh, localities, wherein I don't know how many of you know this or not, but there's a lot of restrictions placed upon 
where hospitals can be built. You can't build a hospital within a certain distance of another hospital uh, because, God forbid, there'd be any competition for them. So that's this concern that still exists out there. And the biggest concern of all is that while it might be a step in the right direction from the standpoint of, okay, it's going to lower the cost of insurance for most of us. It's going to allow people more flexibility in the plans that they choose. It's getting the government out of a role where it's forcing people uh, by gunpoint, essentially, because if you don't pay your fine, you go to jail. But it's forcing people by gunpoint to buy insurance. It's While it's addressing that, it's not removing itself from the system completely. And the concern is that once you put this in place, that that'll be the the end of the discussion. They'll say, okay, well, we kind of repealed Obamacare, but there's still a requirement for people that have pre-existing conditions to be covered. That still exists. Insurance companies still cannot turn anyone away. They can slightly roll back how much they're paying, but those people are still going to be allowed to have insurance. They're going to be, well, the insurance is going to be forced to give them insurance. And Obamacare essentially will still exist. And so once that's done, the Republicans will say, oh, see that? We told you. We did it. We're going to walk away. We're going to skip down the street. Sunshine's on our back. So everything's solved. We made that. That campaign promise is a big check. And that'll be the end of the discussion. And that's a very, very real fear and something that I can see happening. Now, again, will the, will the GOP try to do anything with healthcare? Probably not. Because a lot of these GOPers, by the way, their states are getting a lot of money from Medicaid. And now they're getting even more money. Because with these block grants, the red states, which were against it, are now going to be getting a lot of this money that was going to the blue states before that took advantage of the expanded Medicare rolls. So they're like, well, you know, this is looking pretty good. We're getting more money. And we still get to grandstand. That's a win-win. And Rand Paul, by the way, maybe uh, his, his state actually is one of the beneficiaries. They did expand Medicaid under Obamacare. So there's a little bit of a question as to, as to whether or not his protestations about this bill are rooted in, uh, in his own morals or are rooted in the fact that his state is actually getting more money out of it than they would without uh, or with the block grants in place. But uh, regardless of that, that's the concern with this bill. Now, Empirically, if somebody was to ask me, do I feel that this bill is a good thing or a bad thing? God, I mean, I honestly been thinking about this all day, and I just, I'm really torn, honestly. Um, I would say as of right now, I would say it's probably a good thing. Um, I'm not endorsing it, but I just... To be completely honest, I have a hard time seeing any way that Obamacare is going to be dismantled at all if it doesn't happen in the very near future. Because, as I said, a lot of it's politically unpopular to take away the benefits now that people have them. And it doesn't matter that America was against this plan. It doesn't matter that there is a much better solution, which I'm going to give an example of in about one minute, to this problem that exists in the free market. And that exists with transparency. As of now, as we've seen, when people have benefits, they don't want to give them up no matter what. And they don't give a shit who they're screwing over on the other end. I talked to a buddy of mine who literally, he, he told me, he goes, I don't care. I get benefits off of it. And uh, you know what? I, I, you know, that works for me. And I don't really care. And that's the way anybody that's getting benefits feels about this. 
They don't care that you and I and, and everybody else is getting higher higher uh, premiums. They don't give a shit that uh, they're taking money out of our pockets that we could be spending on other things that might actually aid the economy and growth, that might actually help us buy a house down the road, which any of these things does not matter to them because they are benefiting directly. And God forbid they think of anybody at themselves. And it's all wrapped in this altruistic, oh, well, everybody deserves health care. Don't you care about the children? Don't you care about people who have got cancer? Of course we do. We just think there's a better way. But that argument is not going to hold water. So I honestly, for me, even though I'm torn, even though I despise the fact that the government is not getting it completely out of the way, for me, it's still a move forward. And uh, as much as I hate to say it, I don't think that I am against this bill as Rand Paul is. I, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. It's like if you're looking at if you're looking at a barrel of a gun and a guy's like, I can shoot you in one kneecap or two kneecaps. And I hate to do this like, oh God, I guess sound like was it Lou Rockwell with his uh, Goody and Batty, President Goody and President Batty. I'm a sounding like him. Lesser of two evils here. So, sure, we'll get lots of hate mail about this. Go ahead, bring it at me. Tweet it at me. All right, moving on. So, let me talk about this, this alternate solution. This is what I post on my Facebook page. There's a story coming out of the Cayman Islands. There is a fantastic hospital there, which, by the way, cost $1,000 to $2,000 to get heart surgery at. I'm sure it's much less for other things. You can probably go in there with the sniffles. But it's a, it's a Cayman Islands hospital. It is a for-profit hospital that is one of the highest quality and lowest priced hospitals in the world. Among the most effective, high-performing. And 20 of them, they got like 20 of these, they're owned by India's Narayana Health. And so not only do they service all these people, they do it for cheap, they also do a lot of humanitarian work. They've got a nonprofit side organization that does a lot of work as well. So these people, basically what they do, they open a hospital, And again, for profit, but the whole thing, the reason they were able to make their money so easily and so cleanly is that they don't have the massive amount of bureaucracy and the massive amount of regulations weighing them down that the United States has or the UK has or France has or these other organizations and and nations do. They don't have to go through all of the filing. They don't have to go through all of the taxation. They don't have to go all through all these these different bureaucratic uh, positions to go through Thousands of pages of paperwork all day long, every day. So they're able to really streamline what they're doing. And not only that, they keep everything out in the open. You get a bill, it's one page. You get it before you go in to have the surgery. It says, here you go, heart surgery, uh, anesthesia. Here's what it's going to cost. This is it. This is all it's going to cost. There's no hidden uh, fees. There's no state taxes. There's no anything. Here you go. One to $2,000. Boom. In and out. I mean, that is incredible. And yet, the fact that it's so incredible to us shows you just how fucked up our system is right now. I mean, this place, the hospital, by the way, they even book the airline flights for people. If you want to fly into the country of the hospital, they book your airline flight. It's just nuts. And again, you can't argue that it's just labor and equipment costs because they're based uh, in the Caymans or they're based in India. The difference is the business practice that they are employing. It's uh, it's like they, they call it the Toyota method <laughs> uh, in this article I'm reading, which I'll link to. It's at insidesources.com. But again, I'll link that in the show notes. 
But it's constant improvement in its procedures. It's cost-cutting acts, quality improvements. It's keeping the technology up to date. It's keeping their team members focused. It's, it's basically just, again, having everybody work as a coalition, like a seamless unit, like an engine, rather than having it slow down with the gunk and grime, <laughs> you're like a Castrol commercial, with the gunk and grime that is bureaucracy clogging your engines. I mean, that's really what it is. Because here in the U.S., you got item by item billing. Like, for example, when I had my back surgery, right, I got about 12 bills from 12 different departments at UCLA and from my insurer. And from God knows where else. It was like the anesthesia department, the surgeon, the surgeon's nurse department, the uh, the hospital room bill. Then I got a bill from the insurance company for what they own. Then I had another supplemental bill for what they own. Then I had an outpatient. It's like, it's never ending. Uh, for the scans, everything. Like, there were 12 different bills. It got to the point where I actually, because I missed one bill, I got a letter from UCLA saying that they were sending me to collections. And I wrote a letter to the head of UCLA Health, basically telling her to stick it up her ass because how dare they repeat me to, to uh, report me to a, a credit collections bureau when they send me 12 bills and one of them gets unpaid. It's like for $40. And she wrote me an apology and all this other stuff. But again, it just shows you how ridiculous the system is. So much bureaucracy. You can't tell what's, what anything's going to cost. I thought I was done paying it up front, and then I kept getting bills for months on this stuff for two fifty, for three hundred, for another five hundred bucks. I mean, it's insane. So again, streamline it. Basic services. If you want to get something else, you can go somewhere else. If you want a straight service, and maybe you know, again, it doesn't have to be that complicated. Is it an easier surgery? Then you have somebody that's more junior do it. If it's a tougher surgery, maybe you have the head surgeon do it. I mean, they're talking about this in their cardiac surgery at this place. Senior surgeons come in the operating room after the patient's been prepped. The junior surgeons have already made the first incision. Then the guy comes in only to do the most time-intensive, sensitive tasks. Again, streamline the process. Rather than the way we do it here, we have five people in the room. You have nurses. Everybody's just standing around doing nothing. That costs all that up. And God forbid that they do, they don't, and again, like I was talking about earlier, the insurance companies, because of all these things that are mandated, it, the coverages include, the hospitals say, okay, include it. Run 50 different uh, tests on them. Run 50 different of these. Have, it's like all these costs add up. And it, when you don't have insurance involved, all the costs go down completely. That's the way it should be done. And they also, by the way, here's another fun stat. The average American cardiac surgeon performs 2,500 procedures over a career. This place is surgeon. Surgeons in this company perform 20,000 20, surgeries. That means not only are they working faster, more efficiently, but they also have seen far more scenarios, which means they can deal with a lot more scenarios than a lot of the surgeons here. They've seen it all. 20,000 surgeries, you've seen it all. Anyway, it's just it just shows you what the potential is when you get government out of it, when you get insurance companies out of it, when you get this clusterfuck crony capitalist system out of the way that we're dealing with right now and is put in a pure free market system that is designed to make money in the most efficient way possible. That's what this hospital is doing. Goddamn Obamacare. All right. Two more things. Let's talk about the First Amendment real quick. 
A survey came out recently where they talked to 1,500 college kids. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what part of the country or, or where these kids were at. But they talked to about 1,500 college kids by the, this is the Brookings Institution. Uh, they had done it. He's based out of California, uh, University of California, Los Angeles. And he asked 1,500 students at four-year universities about their views on free speech. So this is... <laughs> going to disgust you, but 44% answered no when asked if the First Amendment protects hate speech. 39% answered correctly, and 16% answered, I don't know. And also, 51% of students thought that shouting so that the audience can't hear is a valid tactic for opposing a controversial speaker. Otherwise, you know, uh, basically the heckler's veto, which we've seen play out uh, in colleges across the country. There's a college that I can't remember which one it was, but recently said, oh, Middlesbrough. They said recently that if they got any inclination or indication that there was going to be violence or uh, something that would make the students feel unsafe for any speaker coming to visit the campus, that they would cancel the event. Is there any more clear indication of the heckler's veto than that? You don't even have to have the actual violence. You just have to say, oh, you know what? If this person comes, I'm going to be real upset and I'm going to, we're going to protest. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, you know, there's going to be hell to pay and the school will cancel it. But 51% of students, 1,500 students thought that shouting so that the audience can't hear is a valid tactic for opposing a controversial speaker. Which basically, again, I don't, you know, there's these, these people online and they argue, they go, well, you know what? You have a right to free speech, but I have a right to, uh, to scream and yell and protest and wave my shit in your face and not let you speak. It's like, well, no, that's not free speech. You understand that? If you're stopping me from speaking, if you're stopping people from hearing what I'm saying by disrupting what's happening, disrupting the event by, uh, by yelling curses and, uh, and shouting over anybody in the proceedings, that's not free speech. Again, it's like the logic. I, I mean, I don't understand the logic here. I, I guess it's just this ignorant victim mentality or privileged mentality they have where if you're, if you're in the wrong by this very subjective point of view, that your right to speak basically doesn't exist. Or that it is far more acceptable to shout over somebody than to listen to what they have to say. I mean, it's just shocking that this is the worldview. And the, and the biggest problem for me is that they're not being taught any differently at these colleges. There's no students standing up. Oh, there's some students standing up. The kids who are actually inviting free speakers to come in. If you're getting Ben Shapiro at Berkeley. But there's no professors that are standing up and telling these kids this is the way it's supposed to be because they don't agree with the side that's being yelled at. So you've got a very tacit and complicit staff of professors and administrators. I mean, God, look at what's happening with, you know, what happened with Brett Weinstein over at, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the college and I'm not going to look it up. Damn you. I'm not looking it up. Evergreen. <laughs> My sleep battle brain. But look at that with Evergreen. You know, you've got a very complicit administrative ta- uh, team that's not going to defend the professor and his, his right to free speech or his opinion in any way, shape, or form. They're agreeing 
with kids that are going to come and scream at him and yell over him and curse at him in the hallway and not allow him to speak. It's just, oh, it's just disgusting. But to not acknowledge the fact that the First Amendment protects hate speech, that's something that is 100% on our politicians. Because you see people, you see like Howard Dean tweeting out. You see politicians tweeting it out constantly. Nancy Pelosi, free speech is not hate speech. Well, no, it is hate speech. And, you know, I've tried to avoid repeating myself in the show too often, but this one point I repeat constantly and uh, I'll try to make it the last time. But again, if anybody says that to you, please point out to them the fact that hate speech is a very subjective term and that in another time period, calling for black people to be free, calling for the slaves to be freed could have been considered hate speech against white crop owners. (laughs) I mean, let's be perfectly honest. This is a similar scenario. And while some people say, no, no, you can't. That's apples and oranges. It absolutely is not in any way, shape, or form because it's a subjective term. And if you're saying like for now, my God, anything can be called hate speech. And people stand up and they say, oh, that's, you're making me feel uncomfortable by your feel like these, look at these trigger warnings. My God, talking about rape is considered a hate speech now. Talking about anything factually, bringing up statistics, people say, oh, that's hate speech. Like if you bring up the fact, like I mentioned earlier, if you bring up the fact that this welfare spending has increased, let's say, okay, I'm talking about, or for example, let's bring up the fact that while I'm a big proponent for social justice reform, while I do think that there are some horrible policing practices going on in black communities, Black Lives Matter couldn't be more wrong statistically in saying that cops shoot black people more than white people because it's simply not true statistically. They, the, the level of people killed is pretty much static across the population for that. Are they being over-policed? Yes, they are. And in fact, you could say that probably the rates for black people being shot would be much lower if those communities weren't over-policed. So I guess maybe disproportionately you could argue that. The, anyway, the point is statistically right now, without getting too deep into it, Black people are not shot and killed more than white people or any other people are. But if you bring that up, they call you a racist. They say that's hate speech. They say that you're ignorant. Again, if this was another time period, who's to say bringing up the facts like, hey, you know what? I think that those slaves should be free, that they've got rights like anybody else. Hate speech. You're anti-white. Off with you. Just saying it holds very true. And it's just sickening to see that so many people don't understand what free speech is, what it stands for, what the power of it is, and how important it has been in the evolution of this country. Because to paint it as something which can be legislated away or pushed out of culture because of high-minded social justice warriors, uh, I mean, it's, it is terrifying. All right, last thing before my voice gives out, guys, I want to talk about, um, oh, I do want to talk about real quick, climate change, a new report came out. And, uh, and by the way, I will say this. So previously, I was exceptionally skeptical of not that climate change was a thing, but the movement of it, how quickly it was moving. And there was the hiatus, I'm sure you all heard about, 12 to 20 years, depending on your sources. But then I read a new paper that came out that actually said that the satellite data, which a lot of that was requiring or or relying upon, was in fact corrected. They did new studies, and essentially it showed that the hiatus was not really so much of a hiatus, that there was still warming going on. It was lesser, but still happening. So again, I'm a man of science. 
And when I read that, I said, okay, well, you know what? My, my skepticism was based on this satellite data. So if that's been corrected, and empirically, people are agreeing that, that now the hiatus is not what we thought it was, then I say, okay, I'm on board. The Earth may be getting warmer. Um, do we think it's caused by man? Okay. I don't know how much that is because the climate models are still completely wrong. Uh, so I'm still very skeptical of climate models. And this is the new news that has just come out. You know, there was all this push that people said, oh, we're already, we're already past the point of no return when it comes to the climate and the globe. And that's why we have to push through all of these reforms. That's why we have to kill off the coal industry. That's why we have to kill off fossil fuels. And you've got these jackasses in Florida saying that they're going to outlaw fossil fuels by 2020. But a new paper came out saying that, by the way, and this is from this is from 10 people that are heavily involved in the climate movement. These are not skeptics. These are not, quote unquote, climate deniers. Another wonderful term that the progressives have made up. Social justice warriors have made up to make sure that your free speech doesn't count. But uh, these people are not in that camp. These are 10 very respected people in the field. And they published their paper in the journal uh, National, actually, Natural Geoscience, Nature Geoscience. <laughs> Sorry. Nature Geoscience is the journal. And essentially saying that emission budgets and pathways are fairly consistent to limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, as are. Uh, they're saying that, in truth, we're probably fine until about 2100 limiting this with what we're doing right now and that all the climate models were overestimating the impact of co2 and that's something i've heard before uh there's basically an argument that i'd heard where you can't judge the initial co2 because like essentially the climate models were saying okay well we're going to take the amount of co2 in the in the atmosphere and it keeps doubling temperature and doubling temperature and doubling temperature which is not the actual way it works um you know once you have a certain amount of co2 in the atmosphere it doesn't just keep doubling and doubling and doubling the climate. It, uh, it, it has a much lesser effect. Even though there's more CO2, you don't have a direct effect like that. And I think this paper has something to do with that. Um, and then it's also just natural variations. So the point being, and again, I've not read this entire paper. I'm just going from some reports and a, and a skimming of it. But the general consensus from this paper is that we have a lot more time to deal with the issue of global warming than we initially thought. And that, frankly, we do not need to push through all sorts of crazy regulations and crazy, crazy legislative moves and shut down entire industries and put people out of work like the Obama administration and the Paris Accords and everything else would have us do. All right, last thing I want to mention, guys, crazy news from the United Kingdom, wherein a watchdog group thinks that if you are a Twitter troll, you should have your voting rights restricted. I shit you not, that is a thing that is being discussed. And this is from, uh, it was published in The Guardian, which is a super, super liberal rag a lot of the time and a bit ridiculous, but... This electoral commission says that bans should be considered an attempt to reduce the amount of abuse faced by politicians. And essentially what they're saying that in some instances, this is a quote, in some instances, electoral law does specify offenses in respect of behavior that could also amount to an offense under the general criminal law. It may be that similar special electoral consequences could act as a deterrent to abusive behavior in relation to candidates and campaigners. And this is because a lot of uh, people that have run for office said they experienced abuse during the 2017 election campaign on social media. 
people saying that, well, I mean, granted, if somebody says they're going to bomb your office, well, I agree, they should probably be investigated. But some people just say, I mean, if you're just talking trash to a politician, if you're just being like, go fuck yourself, like, oh my God, imagine, okay, this is what I, this is what I love about these, <laughs> these free speech things. Again, using free speech as an example of how the worm turns and why you can't just invent legislation to protect something. When your candidate is in office, you can't just create legislation to protect that candidate. Right now, Donald Trump's in office in the United States. If this law, if they put something in place which said you can't attack a member of an elected member of be it parliament or the United States Congress or the president or whatever else, if you can't attack that person or say anything slanderous to that person on Twitter, the entire left would not be able to vote. Every day, all the comedians on Friends of Gun Facebook are posting, fuck Trump, fuck this, fuck that, screw you, I'm going to take a goat and shove him up your ass, you goofy-haired bastard. That's the kind of stuff we're just having. And not just from, from comedians, from everybody, from news reporters, from politicians, from Democratic campaigners, from Democratic party leaders. No one would be able to vote. Literally the stupidest idea I've ever heard in my entire life. To base whether or not you can vote on how you voice your opinion or use your free speech. All right, that will do it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening to this extra long episode of Electric Liberty Land. Again, this is Electric Liberty Land episode 38. Find the show notes at lionsofliberty.com forward slash 38. Reminder, guys, follow us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Follow me at Brian McWilliams, Brian with an I. And make sure to join our Facebook forum where you can interact. You can post all your comments telling me why I'm really stupid for thinking that the Graham, whatever is Cassidy bill, is a step forward uh, rather than just jerking ourselves off with healthcare. Please go to our forum. You can post that there. We'll have a nice interaction. Also, guys, please do check out Mark Clare's show on Mondays with in-depth interviews in the Liberty Movement. Make sure you check out Odermatt, John Odie Odermatt's Felony Fridays, where he looks at the criminal justice system. And he just had, my God, he had some, a, a truly incredible story on last Friday, guys. Please check it out. A woman who went to jail for drug offenses. You got to hear it. He's really doing incredible uh, work over there. And please do. Join our Lions of Liberty Pride, where you get all of our bonus content, including our special uh, Rand pluses and minuses I do, including some Libertarians of Living Rooms Drinking Liquor specials, including our conspiracy shows, including my drunken rants, which I know I have a drunken rant planned for uh, for this Sunday. All right, guys, that's it. And I was, hey, by the way, don't forget, buy a shirt. <laughs> I've got awesome Electric Liberty Land shirts. All right, that's it. Goodbye. Write us an iTunes review. Me, Brian McWilliams, here at Lions of Liberty from Electric Liberty Land. Always stay plugged in to us.